So Daniel is very eye-opening, and um, it lets us know some very simple truths, one of which is that God's kingdom triumphs over all the kingdoms of man. It's just a matter of time. And when you think about the truth that there is a sovereign God who reigns from heaven, it's not that difficult to get that concept in your mind. But whenever you see the prophecy laid out and the exactitude with which it's laid out, down to the, down to the minutia of when the, uh, the Son of Man will be cut off, it's, it's very staggering indeed. And I pray that God will uh, encourage us. Um, I was reading in some of the commentaries I've been reading in over the past couple of weeks. I can't remember the author's name, but he said that um, as he travels about and deals a lot with missionaries overseas, two of, the, two, two of the books from the scriptures that encourage them the most are the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, simply because it reminds them that while they were going through persecution and trials and hardships, that our God wins. And it gives them the perspective and the hope to keep moving forward in the name of Christ. Isn't that good? Yes. It's good. Listen, author Brian Chappell in his commentary on da Daniel, titled The Gospel According to Daniel, says this of the book's impact on our thinking and living. He says it's a sovereign, all-powerful God of grace who uses his sovereign power to maintain his covenantal promises forever. This gospel, according to Daniel, should give us courage against our foes, hope in our distress, and perseverance in our trials. <laughs> Isn't that good? I mean, that just kind of hits the nail firmly on the, on the head. The Apostle Paul said something a lot more uh, profound in that it's inspired of the Holy Spirit. He said it this way in Romans 15, 4 through 6. He said, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, Daniel, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. I think that's even better. In Daniel chapter 1, we're going to see a portrait of a young man and his three friends who must learn quickly how to live in a pagan culture without compromising their convictions and their stand on the Word of God. And I think that there's a, a lot that we can learn just from that statement, just from that idea alone. And we need to always be mindful of the fact that these young boys, these, uh, the nobles, the boys, the, the children from, the, from these nobles' family, the, the Daniels, the Shadrach, these, um, these were teenage boys. And I say boys, but I, I ought to be saying young men. These are teenage young men. And we see that young men living in pagan cultures a pagan culture, can live with convictions according to the Word of God without compromising their walk before God. That should be encouraging to especially you young men and ladies and the rest of us as well. They had to quickly and providentially um, make these adjustments because they found themselves forcibly removed from their Jewish homes and kosher way of living implanted in the soil of an anti-God Babylonian culture. And it's in this culture into which God providentially brought them that we are allowed to see what is possible in the life of children of God when hearts are drawn toward heaven and when our minds are stayed fast on the Word of God. My encouragement for each of us as we go through Daniel, you hear the saying often, you know, uh, dare to be a Daniel, these kind or, or similar concepts like that. And it's, he, he indeed is a good example, is he not? He is a solid example. But we need to take away the principles, we need to take away the values that Daniel, Daniel valued in order to be like a Daniel. 
And the things that Daniel valued that we're going to see early on in the book of Daniel is he valued the Scriptures. He was a young man who understood the Word of God, which meant what? Which meant that as a young man, he spent time in the Word of God, reading the Word of God, knowing the Word of God, hiding God's Word in his heart. I'm sure he knew of the proverb, the, the psalm that we read just a few weeks ago, of, of hiding God's word in our heart so that we wouldn't sin against God because he does that exact thing and he's, his perspective comes from the scriptures that he's hidden in his heart. So we need to be those who are going to manage our lives in similar ways if we want to have similar outcomes as we see in Daniel. The Apostle Paul again in Colossians 3, 1 through 3, wrote these very poignant words for this culture or any culture. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. I feel the tension, especially within our culture, as we see the, the America that most of us have loved and valued being degraded to such a degree that we may not ever recognize it again. Are you feeling it? Are you seeing that? And it's causing a lot of us to Be very passionate about things that are on the earth. And I'm not saying that we can't be passionate about things on the earth. But I'm saying that things on the earth need to be in proper perspective with regard to the things of God. There are two things on the earth that will last forever. It's the souls of people and the word of God. And if we fight like the Dickens to preserve anything, it ought to be the Word of God, the free preaching and teaching of the Word of God in order to impact the souls of people. I'm not going to invest my energies trying to preserve an American culture that I grew up in and loved greatly. That's way out of my control and above my pay grade. And Daniel chapter 2, by the way, gives us great encouragement with regard to that. We see very plainly in Daniel chapter 2, we're not there yet, but we see very plainly there that our God is responsible for the rise and fall of nations. Not governments. God, as a matter of fact, Romans 13 tells us that God puts governments in place for particular purposes and reasons. Daniel gives us a very solid account of the truth that our God reigns from heaven above. And since we have been raised up with Christ, because by grace through faith we have been saved, amen? Since that is true, we need to be seeking the things above where Christ is. We need to be thinking thoughts about how can I use my life in the short period of time I have to make impact for the kingdom of Christ. The word of God, the souls of men, things that will last for all eternity. And set my thinking, set my mind, not on things that are on the earth, but on things that are above. Things that are of spiritual value. Amen? For you have died. Have you died? brother or sister. For you have died. And your life that you now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Galatians 2.20 For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When we know whose we are and we treasure His words in our heart, we, like Daniel, can live in a pagan culture and be used by God in ways that we could have never, ever imagined. So let's live passionately 
for the glory of God. And we may never know exactly the impact that our little lives may have on planet Earth. But God does. He knows exactly whose life He wants to touch through yours. So be His witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. Let's be ambassadors for Christ in chains. I believe that's one of the things that stands out strongly when we think through truths that we will find in the book of Daniel. We're going to see that Daniel and his friends, living in this pagan culture, are willing to bend as far as they can in order to go along and get along within that culture so long as they aren't forced to sin against their God. Daniel's life is a great study for all of us who are willing to go all out for God, to be used by God. And so let's be encouraged in the scriptures as we go through this book of Daniel to be those like Daniel and his friends who will stand up in our culture for our Lord all the way to the end of the line. Amen? Let's be such people. Well, as we begin this first chapter, we're going to surface some very concrete principles on how we as believers can do that. The outline that I'm going to be using for us this morning is very simple. First, we're going to see in verses 1 and 2, divine judgment. God's work in spite, God works in spite of the sins of His people. Secondly, in verses 3 through 5, deportation. The challenges of living in a non-Christian culture. And thirdly, total transformation, the identity crisis. Who names you? So without any further ado, let's look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you're a note taker, put down divine judgment. God works in spite of the sins of his people. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, the first and probably the most important thing we need to understand about this besiegement is that it is an act of divine judgment. And that's why I used it as a heading over here of divine judgment. We see that it does not say that Nebuchadnezzar simply defeated Jerusalem. We see in verse 2 that, quote, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So we have to ask the question, who gave? The Lord gave. So what we know is that what's happening to God's people with regard to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who besieged Jerusalem, that it was something that God was up to. An act of divine judgment, which clearly lets us know that God is at work. And that's why I said over here, secondly, that God works in spite of the sins of His people. What we're seeing in the timeline of the history of the nation of Israel is that there's a sinful people that have had stiff necks and have been rebelling against God for a very long time. And God, in His providence, at just the right time, sends Nebuchadnezzar, His servant, the king of Babylon, to besiege Jerusalem, and to deport them out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. This is clearly an act of divine judgment. And God, in keeping with His divine prerogatives of making His glory and His name renowned across the, across the world, is faithfully working out his covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the unilateral covenant that he made with Abraham, where he swore by himself that one day he would bring a promised redeemer through Christ our Lord, in spite of the fact that the nation of Israel, his covenantal nation, has been in complete 
rebellion against his leadership. Time and again, God warned them that he would take them from their land if they failed to follow his ways and obey his commands. If you just read through Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 through 68, listen to how many verses that is, 15 through 68, you will see clearly that God says to his chosen people, if they do not walk and follow his ways, that he will do what he's doing in Daniel to them. He will take them out of their land and give it to someone else. We just start here in verse 15. I'm giving you just a taste of this. He says in Deuteronomy 28, 15, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes which, with which I charge you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. We jump down to verse 26. Your carcasses, if, you don't, if you're questioning the severity of what God is saying to them. He says, Your carcasses will be, for, will be food for the birds of the sky and to the beast of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. So I think the severity of uh, God's curses that will come upon them and overtake them, we see the severity of that here. You skip down to verse 49 and 50. It says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. From the end of the earth, as an eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. So God, out of faithfulness to himself and his own glory, sent the southern kingdom of Judah a prophet named Jeremiah who warned them and pleaded with them to turn from their sinful ways they violently rejected his message. And so God, speaking through his prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 25, 8 through 11, says this, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the earth, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. God sent a prophet. The prophet cried out and warned the nation vociferously. They violently reject his word as they had been rejecting the word of other prophets. And so their deportation and subsequent judgment was prophesied, as it says here in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that in the third year, I don't have it there, but then the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, is when this very desolation begins. Now, let's just stop right here and ask a very obvious question from the text. How seriously do you think God really takes sin? No, I mean, like, really, how seriously do you really think God takes sin? God's very patient. He's long-suffering. But there comes a time when your sin will find you out. It's just a matter of time. We see here that God takes sin very seriously. So seriously that it's somewhat staggering to us when we read through Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. And I think sometimes in our new covenantal living, under the new covenant that Christ inaugurated with his blood, we carry grace around as if it were some kind of right of passage 
that we can sin, and yes, we don't like it, but it's all been covered. And this thing of grace, we kind of carry around like Linus carries his blanket. We just always say, yeah, but grace. Brother, look at your light. Yeah, but grace. And we have a misunderstanding of grace to the degree that the Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 2 had to clarify even to the churches that it was the grace of God that instructs us to deny ungodliness and unrighteousness and to live a righteous life before God in the here and the now. Paul says, should sin abound all the more that grace may increase? Never. May it never be. That should never be the perspective of God's people. That, well, I have a covering, the blood of Jesus, I have a covering, and so I can continue to sin as I want to sin. Listen, can you continue to sin? Yes. But let me remind you, your sin will find you out, and the Lord chastens those whom He loves. And we see the Lord chastening His elect nation very severely in and through the book of Daniel and the passages therein. And in Psalm 90, verse 10, they would have known this passage. Um, The chosen people of God, these who are being taken uh, into deportation from their homeland of Jerusalem into Babylon, they would have known of this passage. And this passage reminds us of something very staggering. He says, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. What did we see in Jeremiah 25, verse 11? They will serve the king of Babylon. How long? Seventy years. The consequences of sin can have ongoing ramifications and impact your life all the days of your life. Yes, there's a covering. Grace is amazing and it abounds wonderfully. But sin and the consequences of sin can impact your life as it's going to impact the lives of this nation. The entire nation, the entirety of the the nation that goes into the captivity of Babylon for 70 years, the majority of the nation will die in captivity. Only the youths like Daniel. Now, if Daniel goes in as 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 a teenager, let's say he's a young teenager. Let's say he's 13. After 70 years, he's coming out 83. So if by strength, perhaps 80 years. So even the youths that go into captivity, who perhaps live through the captivity and survive the captivity and some of the harsh treatment that probably was occurring in the captivity, those would be the only ones making it out after the deportation's over and they make it back to their homeland under Cyrus to start rebuilding and laying a foundation for the rebuilding of a temple. The consequences of the sin of the nation of Israel is going to cost them the balance of their lives. May we always be reminded therein that sin never pays off, ever, and it will take you further than you wanted to go, and it will keep you there longer than you wanted to stay. Is there forgiveness? Yes. Lord, forgive me for that sin. Forgiven. But the consequences of your sin can last your lifetime. Daniel 1 and 2 stands as a monument to the reality that your sin will find you out and eventually, though God was long-suffering with His people, He disciplines those whom He loves and He loves you, the church, if you are indeed one of God's children. And to think otherwise would be a deception of the devil. And although this context is different from ours, from the old covenant of God dealing with His chosen 
nation and the Mosaic law and all that stuff to a new covenant and God dealing with his chosen children now compromised with the body of Christ, it makes no difference. God still disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews 12, 6, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son with whom he receives. Hebrews 12, 10, a few verses later, reminds us why. He disciplines us for what? For our good that we could recognize that God is good. We can taste and see that God is good. His ways are good. His ways are right. I need to stop going to the Seth pool of sin like a dog that returns to its vomit. I need to stop going back there and just recognize that God is good. His ways are good. His ways are right. And he does it so that we can share in his holiness. He's conforming us into the image and character of his son, Jesus Christ. John 10.10 reminds us that it's our true adversary, the devil, who's simply wanting to steal kill, and destroy your lives. The temptations of the adversary, those flaming darts from Ephesians 6, those flaming arrows are simply there to want to steal, kill, and destroy. And never forget, sin will take you. How did I say that? I've already forgotten. It'll keep you further than you wanted to go, and it'll keep you longer than you intended to stay. Let's walk circumspectly as God's children. Amen? Daniel 1 and 2 is a very sobering picture of the goodness of God in the fulfillment of His covenants and the impact that has on the lives of people. Look at verse 3. Again, deportation, the challenges of living in a non-Christian culture. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Historically, there were three deportations that brought about the complete destruction and deportation of Judah as a nation. What we read here in Daniel chapter 1 is the first of those three deportations, which happened in 605. B.C., the second was in 597 B.C., and the third and the final was in 586 B.C. And so what we know from these deportations and how they were staggered out is that Nebuchadnezzar has a plan. He didn't just recklessly bring every last individual from Jerusalem into Babylon all at the same time. We see in uh, Daniel that he brings in, it says, quote, some of the Sons of Israel, and specifically some of the royal family and of the nobles. The deportation for these young men would have been the most, if you think about this, it would have been the most traumatic shock to their worlds. I mean, imagine, you're a young man, you're just kind of going about living life as, as normal, and all of a sudden Nebuchadnezzar shows up, he besieges your, your homeland, and he starts taking away from the royal families, the noble children, and taking them away in captivity to Babylon. Their world was completely turned upside down. They were thrust into complete isolation from all that was familiar to them. And I think trying to walk a step or two in the, in the shoes of Daniel and these young uh, boys from these royal families helps get our minds set on the, the difficulties of the realities that they were facing, but also of the significance of the impact that God's word can have even in the heart and mind of a young person whose life has been completely turned topsy-turvy. They've been taken from their homeland, their family, all their friends, everything that was familiar to them and everything that they knew is gone. And they find themselves now needing to live life completely Differently, and we see in verse 4 just how differently that is. Notice how these boys are being trained and for what specific purpose. It says, These youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. So we see here that the purpose for which this first deportation of these young boys was for the purpose of serving in the king's court. You see that right there? The ability of serving in the king's court. 
And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Completely different context here, but I had the opportunity of having a conversation with Cade Coffee this week uh, through the internet connection of some, somehow that works. But, um, you know, he's in literature school. He's in language school. And so I'm like, hey, how's language school going? He's kind of like, you know, you've seen, can you get Cade's picture in your mind? That big smile of his? He just went, how's language school going? Language school is never easy. He's, in, he's investing, he said, five to six hours daily. And I said, well, how, how is your uh, ability to, to communicate? He said, well, <laughs> it's kind of... It's kind of broken. It's not the best. The challenges that these boys were faced thrust into a new culture in order to learn a new language of the Chaldeans for the purpose of serving in the king's court. Perhaps will give you a a level and a, and a, of understanding or an appreciation, a level of appreciation for the, uh, the isolation that these young boys were going through and perhaps what it might feel like to be thrust into uh, a classic uh, class or case of indoctrination into another culture for a very specific purpose that is completely foreign to you and your way of living. In verse 4, we see that he wants these boys trained to serve the king. And it seems that the purpose for which he would want that is so that when the next deportation shows up, he has Judean boys who are respected from noble families who can now speak the Chaldean language and the Hebrew language dialect, and he can communicate to all the second wave of, of um, Judeans who are coming in and give very quick communication and understanding to them as to how and where and what they should do in making arrangements for their new living and life. So the king has forced them to learn the literature, the language, the philosophy, the religion, the culture of the Chaldeans. These young boys are subjected to enormous amounts of pressure to conform to a new culture that's completely around them. And God's word tells us that we need to be nonconformist to the world, right? Tells us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And this is where we find a little bit of um, a really unique teaching moment on the application of a passage like Romans 12.2. These boys, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, are being indoctrinated in the language, the literature, the philosophy, the religion of the Chaldeans. We're going to see in the next passage the food that they eat. They're being asked to conform in every possible way and means in order to serve a pagan king within a pagan culture. God's word says not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is where I believe that that what we see in the lives of Daniel and these youths is of such import, uh, import and importance for us today. As I mentioned in my intro, Daniel and these boys bent as far as they could bend in accommodating the requests that were being forced upon them. And if you think about it, learning literature, learning language, learning philosophy, learning the religion of the Chaldeans, learning all those things, to be able to communicate these things, none of these things are actually forcing them somehow to sin against God. And so they bent as far as they could go until they got to the point where they were being asked to do something that would cause them to sin against God, which we see in verse 5. When the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. So the king's food and the king's drink, the wine which he drank. You see, the Jewish culture had a very, um, had a very unique uh, dietary 
uh, restrictions, did they not? They had a very kosher appetite, and it was the Word of God that instructed them on what they could eat and what they could not eat. And if you go back in Leviticus and you can read some of the civil code where things you can eat and things you cannot eat, it becomes very obvious that God was distinguishing them from all the nations around them to be a people known as the people of Yahweh, the people of God. And so they've now been forced into a context in which they're being asked to eat food that would have been in violation. And we know that because in our sermon next week that we haven't gotten to yet, we see that this is the place where they take their stand. And so, not wanting to jump ahead into verse 8 just yet, I think the importance for us to understand on how to balance the truth of a Romans 12, 2 for you and sometimes working for ungodly people and needing to accommodate things within a culture, I think Daniel gives us a good example for what that looks like. You bend as far as you can bend without sinning against God. And when they ask you to sin against God, that's when you draw your line in the sand. Now perhaps you have something that's objectionable consciously for you and you find some biblical principles to, to hoist that personal conviction and perhaps even therein is a line that you're not willing to cross. Well, if that's the case, then be willing to be like a Daniel. Be willing to put it all on the line and allow it to cost you something. And in regard to Daniel's, we'll see next week and his friends, it would have cost them their lives to take the stand for God by rejecting the, the food from the king's table and the wine which he drank. So if you're willing to, 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 to have personal convictions that you've built from principles within the Word of God, but it's not a mandate within Scripture, that's fine. And God's placed that on your heart. Do it, but be willing to take the consequences, as does Daniel. But we see Daniel willing to bend as far as he can bend without sinning against God. And I think that that's the way that, that uh, the Word of God calls us to make right application of not being conformed to the world in which we live. There are so many things that we can not participate in. In our culture, in their culture, what, they, what these boys were forced into, the level of indoctrination that they were being forced into is something that you and I never really are, are, are that accustomed to. The... Um, the closest thing that I could think of that most of us are probably dealing with to some degree now is this, this whole vaccine issue that we're faced with, right? Of being forced, you know, to, being forced to take a vaccine or you can't do X, Y, or Z. And I know I've talked to some of you even here this morning who uh, making a decision not to take the vax is going to cost you a job. I've talked to a couple of you in, that, in, a, in a very similar situation as that. And that's a situation... Uh, it seems that if we're going to look to principles within the Word of God of not being conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, I think we have to ask ourselves, in taking a vaccine shot, is that going to cause me to sin against God? Is that going to cause me to sin against the holy and living God? And if you come to the conclusion that that's going to cause you to sin, then you take your stand. And then you take the consequence that comes with such stand. Amen? Amen. I mean, it just really kind of boils down to it being that simple. If you believe that taking the vax isn't that which is going to cause you to sin against God, and you have your way of articulating, then take the vaccine. You alone will stand before God someday. Individually. And if you take the vax and you get before God and he says, I told you right there not to take the vax, you say, I'm sorry, God, I took the vax. I didn't know. I didn't see it that clearly spelt out in the word of God. But Christ. And if you choose not to take the vax and you get before God and it costs you a whole lot, and you say, God, why did you cause me to, I lost my this and I lost my that. And he was like, all you had to do is take a vax. Don't forget, I got your days numbered beginning from the end. You're not going to die a nanosecond sooner than you think you might die. So, is there a balance in all of that? 
of not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds with this issue on, that we're faced with. So I went to a Thunder game uh, this past week. Me and my boys, we walk up. Where's your Vax card? <laughs> Vax card? Yeah, you can't get in. No Vax card, no entry. So you make choices. And if our culture continues to go in that direction, and they start limiting things that you can do, places you can't go, places you can't eat, entertainment you can't, then you make, life is about making choices. But as for me, I'm going to make choices and I'm going to bend within a culture as far as I can bend to accommodate whatever that culture may be. I'm not here to make waves. I want to live a simple, peaceful life. As far as it depends on me, I want to be at peace with all people. Because I don't want my testimony, I don't want the gospel that flows forth from my life to be skewered by any anger over this issue, that issue, or anything else. But as far as it depends on me and my house, when it comes to sinning against God, that's where we draw our line. And if we see a clear admonition within the scripture that says, thou shalt not cross this line, like with Daniel and his, his compadres, a dietary issue that clearly crossed the threshold of sinning against God, and next week we're going to see in verse 8, they said no. So my encouragement for all of us this morning is focusing on this portion right here within the Romans 12, 2 passage. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take everything and every issue back to the Word of God and just ask a very simple question, no matter what the issue may be. Is this going to cause me to sin against God? And if in your heart and in your mind you believe that that issue is going to cause you to sin against God, then dare to be a Daniel and take your stand. Come what may. It's that simple. On the other hand, the complexities of this within the body of Christ becomes really challenging. Because I'm dealing with people on both spectrums. And both are wanting to persuade me in their directions. And both are wanting me to take a stand with them on their side or with them on their side. It's not easy being cheesy. The last thing we need is for the adversary to use something like this to divide the body of Christ. My admonition to us, church, is to do everything that we can to preserve peace and unity within the body over this vax issue or any other issue that may come down the pipe as the days are drawing near to not divide the body of Christ over. If you know of a brother or sister who gets vaccinated, don't try to vax shame them. If you know of someone who's not getting vaxxed, no need to do the anti-vax shame on them. Let them stand before God. Learn to live and let live. And if you say, well, Pastor Ben, I believe it's a sin issue. Okay, well, if God has shown you that from his word, then he showed you. If you'd like to show me from the scriptures, my ears are always open. I just want to love God and love his word. So we got to learn to live and let live. Not let this divide this body or any other body or, or other friendships within the body. And encourage one another all the more. Instead, as we know, the day of Christ is drawing near. I was talking to Pastor Matt just recently, last week or so, and he said, you know, he said as the end times are approaching and we see things in our culture turning the way they're turning, he said, I think that we're going to get to a place where people within the body of Christ need to learn to take secondary issues way less seriously because the surrounding culture around us is going to demand that we stay unified on the main thing. Because if we get divided and conquered over non-essentials, 
It's going to weaken the body of Christ when the body of Christ needs to be its strongest. So Daniel gives us a good living picture, I think, of what that can look like and how we can proceed through such issues as they did. Now, they were under greater duress without question, but none the same. If your government asks you to sin against God, civil disobedience should ensue. Let's finish this up real quick this morning. Look at verse 6 and 7. Total transformation, the identity crisis, who names you? Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now sometimes when you first start reading the book of Daniel and you see these names right here, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you might be thinking, who are they? Well, this is uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you got Daniel. So what's interesting is they get new names assigned to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But we always refer to Daniel as Daniel. His Jewish name, and we always refer to these other Jewish boys who these are their original Jewish names, we always kind of keep referring to them to their Babylonian names, which is really interesting. Um, so someday, perhaps, when we're in the kingdom of, of, of God and the new heaven, the new earth, and all of God's children are, are there, and we're going to run into Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So don't call them Shadrach. Okay, don't call them Meshach. Don't call them Abednego. You're going to want to call them by their, their names. You know, names in the Old Testament, as you know, um, carried a lot of significance, didn't they? Uh, when, when families uh, named their kids' names, it, it came with import. Daniel translates, Elohim is my judge. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is like Elohim? Azariah, Yahweh helps. And on and on we could go with all these Jewish names. Benjamin, son of my right hand. Okay, it's not as impressive as these, but it's still a point of significance in naming um, and giving names to people. And, and they carried these names. And within the Jewish culture, that name wasn't just something you went by. It was, it was a part of your family heritage. It was part of what your family gave you. The name, it was significant. It meant something. Now, in our culture, we just kind of name kids what sounds cool. Um, you know, we, we get a particular name, and, and we don't even think about what it translates at all. I mean, it's like, just is it, is it hip, cool, and is it, is it going to you know, make me feel happy as a parent someday calling my little kid this name. As a matter of fact, I have a, I have a brother, I think I've told this story at once somewhere, but I have a, I have a, a half-brother who, whenever his first uh, son was being born, he told his wife he wanted to name him Gator. And you might ask, well, is there any kind of family significance to that? Or is there any, you know, Gator, Yahweh is my stronghold? No, of course not. It was after the alligator. Um, Yes, there's just a sense of being tough-skinned, maybe. Son, I want you to have tough skin, thick skin. People are going to come at you in life, and that's why I named you Gator. You're going to have tough skin, and you can take it. I don't know. But in our culture, we don't seem to, to think about the naming of our kids so that it carries with them some theological import and significance. But in this Jewish culture, they did. And so whenever they were given the new names, Daniel was given a new name, uh, Belshazzar. Um, Bel was the chief deity of the Babylonians. And Belteshazzar translates, may Bel protect his life. And that's why I t titled this one, Total Transformation, Who Names You? The, the importance or the significance of, of identity crises, of really knowing who you are and whose you belong to. So if I were to say to you this morning, what's your name? Well, I'm Benjamin, but I've been born again. 
and am I Christ follower? Am I a Christian? There's significance to these things. Reminds me of who I am and whose I am. And the price that was paid and that I was bought with and redeemed from a slavery pit of sin and set firmly upon a solid foundation and a rock to live for Yahweh, the only true and living God. We as brothers and sisters in Christ need to have solid whose we are. These boys are being forced into a culture. They've been completely isolated. They're being indoctrinated, needing to change their language, their customs, everything, and, and ultimately even given a new name. The Babylonians are trying to strip them of everything they are all the way down to the significance of, who they were, of how they were named and the, and the import of that in relationship to God and trying to connect them with the gods of Babylon. Bel is my protector. Belteshazzar. Abednego. We need to understand the importance and the significance of our name. If we are going to be those who are living in a post-Christian culture and standing for the only true and living God. So you may have been named Gator. I don't know. I don't know any Gators here. But you may have gotten a name like Gator that didn't have a lot of significance, no family ties to it. It doesn't somehow connect you back to Yahweh or Elohim or doesn't have anything uh, significant like that, but it may be really cool. But the most important thing about your identity and your naming is that you belong to Christ. That you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He gave you His new name. You're a Christian. You're a Christ follower. And living in the post-Christian culture that you're living in, that name should be significant and should be meaningful. Don't allow the culture around you to force you or to conform you into something that you're not. So remember whose you are and allow that to be a significant import in how you live for God. So we're just getting started here in the book of Daniel. We're just laying the foundation, and he got a quick jump. He went from the besiegement of Jerusalem all the way down to the naming of these four youths, these four teenagers. So from divine judgment all the way down to total transformation, transformation and who names you. And beginning next week in verse 8, it gets very specific on those four lads. And we're going to see six character principles in the balance of chapter 1 in Daniel and each of these character principles that we see with regard to Daniel are things that you and I, as believers living in, in a post-Christian culture, need to be six out of six on ourselves. So come back next week with an anticipation of learning more of what it looks like to be a Daniel. Pray with me.